Let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have every kind of pleasure you see. And after several nights, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. Then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream. Finally, you would dream where you are now. Basically, I wasn't born in Washington State, but I grew up here. I grew up in a little town called Yakima. Uh, I think it has a population of about 70,000. And uh, it it has a lot of drug use in there. There's a lot of meth use. There's a lot of uh, heroin. Apparently, especially nowadays, heroin has uh, risen quite a bit over there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so drugs were kind of not necessarily always a part of my life, but when I really started to gain an interest in substance use in specifically, I was interested in how they changed my consciousness. Uh, I, I quickly realized that I had access to certain substances. Um, I would say that, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family. Uh, my parents are divorced and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that affected me in certain ways, but I couldn't really say that it had detrimental effects. You know, if I'm really digging deep, it probably did. But that's just kind of, you know, I mean, that that's the way my life was. I spent most of the week with my mom and then every other weekend I would see my dad and uh, I'd bounce back. I'd bounce back and forth between Yakima and Seattle uh, wow. to, you know, to go visit my father. Um, um, how old were you when, when your parents divorced? I was in, uh, I was in the fifth grade. So that would put me, I believe 10, 11 years old. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, my mom, after they divorced, she started dating other men. And I think the first time that I ever expressed interest in altering my state of mind was 
my my mom was dating this guy who when I look back on it now, he had he got a gag gift from somebody, but it was basically this little bottle of pills that claimed to increase your sex drive. Right. And I mean, I I was fucking, you know, 11, well, 12, yeah, about 12 years old, 11, 12 years old when when this happened. But this bottle was sitting on the kitchen counter. And for whatever reason, I was interested in that. I had no sex drive. Like I wasn't even masturbating yet, you know, Um, but I wanted to know what that meant. And so I opened the bottle and inside were these little um they, they were in the end like little Tic Tacs, but they were in the shape of dicks. <laughs> right. Nice. <laughs> and uh, and I took like one or two of those and then and then went outside and played, you know, and uh, I remember wanting to feel like I was high, like being a little kid. I'm, you know, running around like like play humping my friends or whatever, just, just being an <laughs> yes. idiot. But when I look back on it, they weren't anything. They were sugar pills, yeah. you know. Did you, but that you, was, do you think they even had like a semi placebo effect on you or that it was just like you were just wanting to feel some kind of, of change in your, in your like uh, brain chemistry? I wanted to experience a change in my brain chemistry, but what I experienced, it wasn't, it was an 11 year old's version of a placebo effect. It wasn't like my libido was actually increased or anything. It was, um, it was my desire to know what that felt like. And so I played that out in action, but there, there really wasn't anything. It's you kind know? of like when a child sees a movie and then like reenacts it afterwards or something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so fast forward, I, you know, I, I, you know, I would steal cigarettes from my parents or whatever, but I didn't even know what a nicotine buzz felt like until I was 15 years old. And that was, there was no inhaling or anything. Yeah. I remember at a certain point, I was probably 13 or 14. Uh, my mom started dating this guy who is now my stepdad. And, uh, he had these, he had a couple kids who were about four years older than me and they were definitely steeped in, uh, you know, drinking and, smoking weed and everything. And I remember snooping around their room and finding what I know now to be, it was their little box or it was like a little tray that they would use to kind of like uh, sort out bud and oh. everything to, to separate stems and seeds at the time. Cause yeah. every, everything was all the weed was super seedy. A de-seeding tray. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well. It was a little de-seeding tray. And if I, there was a little, it had a little velvet uh, bottom and you could pull up that velvet bottom And there was a bunch of crumbs of weed under there. Right. And I thought that those crumbs of weed was their actual stash. I had never seen weed before. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, my God, this is it. So I was like trying to I would scrape up some of these crumbs and I would try to leave some so that it didn't seem like I had taken any, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And uh, I remember taking that home and making a little pipe out of uh, tinfoil and trying to smoke that. But again, I never inhaled. I didn't know that you were actually supposed to draw it into your lungs. I just it drew it into my mouth and then exhaled. And again, if I would have inhaled, I probably would have gotten stoned to shit. But yeah. there was nothing. There was nothing. But uh, the first time I actually got inebriated was when I was 15, and that was on alcohol. It was on uh, New Year's of 2000, and I wanted to. I wanted to know what it was like to be drunk. I was invited out by friends, and my dad and I had a close enough relationship where I told him, like, you know, I'm thinking about going out and going to a party with friends. And he knew what that meant. 
Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, if you're going to drink, I'd rather you just do it here. Uh, I don't want you going anywhere, but it's New Year's. If that's what you want to do, I'll go out and I'll buy the alcohol. You're just basically grounded to the house for the night. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, yeah. And looking back, I think that um, brain chemistry wise, it was irresponsible. But I, he's not a neuroscientist or anything. He doesn't. Yeah. So but he was kind of being a res- in his way, a responsible father. And I, I appreciate that. And so he went out and basically got makings for fuzzy navels. Um, like just kind of like a sweet orange sort of a drink. And, uh, you know, he brought it back and he told me, he's like, you know, you can drink as much as you want. Just know that, uh, the next morning, if you throw up, uh, I'm going to make fun of you for the rest of your life, (laughs) which is kind of outside of, uh, his personality. But I think he was just teasing. And, uh, I ended up just getting plastered. You know, I ended up passing out at some point, waking up and seeing that my stepbrother had puked all over the place. Um, and I went out and watched the ball drop, just kind of weaving in and out, making an ass out of myself. And the next morning I woke up with a gnarly hangover, but, um, I didn't puke. So nice. Yeah. Um, that's so, um, that's so funny. Cause I, I've, I see so many similars in my story, um, with what you just mentioned. Uh, you know, my first experience with drugs, I, I had, um, I had I was in like fourth grade. I had just moved from LA up into Central Coast, and I had never done a drug in my life. And I was in fourth grade, and I I had found <laughs> so stupid, but I found my my our dog had some kind of medication, and I smuggled it onto a uh, school campus. And I would I had approached some I guess friends, and I was like, oh look, I have drugs, and I would like undo the capsules and like pour the powder out. And just, I was just, I guess I was trying to show off or something. And then one of the, one of the, of my classmates had snitched me out and, um, the, uh, the principal pulled me aside and was like, what is this? And I, I just on the spot, just kind of, uh, bullshitted a story and said, oh yeah, that's my medication. (laughs) 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 So they had, uh, they're like, all right, well, we're going to hold on to this and, um, we'll give it to you at the end of the day. And then they did. And I just, I just threw it in the trash. I was like, I'm not going to take my dog's medication. But then they had, you know, informed my parents of what happened and they're, they pulled me aside and they're like, did you (laughs) take the dog's medication? And I was like, no, (laughs) maybe in fourth grade, I'm not that dumb. I'm just trying to like act cool in front of the new kids. And, um, yeah, you know, the first time I had, uh, smoked weed, I didn't inhale like the first three or four times I, I didn't know anything about inhaling and it was around my fourth or fifth time I actually did like finally inhale and it was like a kind of revolutionary feeling I had experienced. And, um, yeah, the first time I had consumed alcohol was, was new years and, uh, I didn't watch the ball drop, but, um, I got incredibly drunk and, uh, I threw up everywhere. So it's just really, uh, fascinating how so many, um, uh, people growing up in, uh, in America, they, their, their first experiences with, uh, you know, marijuana or alcohol, it, it's almost very similar from what I've experienced or heard from other like feedback from people. Um, so you, um, so from there you, um, would you say you went, deeper and deeper into, um, smoking pot and alcohol, or did you branch off and experiment with other drugs from that point? You know, um, with, so I, I partied a little bit more by this time I was a freshman in high school and, uh, 
you know, I would drink with friends, but it was always a social thing. I honestly, I never really enjoyed the buzz that alcohol gave me. Mm -hmm. I thought it was, it it just, it made me dizzy. Like I I felt kind of dizzy and, um, and just kind of like topsy turvy. It wasn't a necessarily special thing for me. I would do it because I wanted to be cool, to be honest. And, uh, I always, I always did it because I did it because I wanted to be cool, but I also had in mind I wanted to get drunk, which I don't think is the the best way to actually experience alcohol. Because at least for me, if I go to get if I start drinking, I experience what I believe to be the the desired effects of alcohol if I drink slowly, you know, where I yeah. kind of get a buzz and I try to maintain that. Definitely. And in the in the end, I think there's a a a brain process in there that you still get drunk in the mind, but you don't feel that wooziness, you know, like you kind of start to get dumber and dumber and your social inhibitions in decrease, Mm -hmm. but you kind of stay away from that, uh, over wooziness. Whereas if you drink fast, which is what I was doing at that time, um, I would just immediately drop into that just drunken stupor woozy dizzy state. And I would oftentimes just pass out. I wouldn't black out. I just fall asleep. Yeah. And so it, it just wasn't uh, desirable to me. I would, I was smoking weed a little bit again with us, a group of friends that I had, but I ended up, uh, you know, I would get the giggles and the munchies and everything, but I also recognized that it really put me inside of my head and it made me anxious around people. So, and At the time, the excuse that I made to stop was that I felt like it made me dumber in math class after I was sober, like it was actually like doling my sentences, which looking back with 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 how I know weed now, I think that that's absolutely true. If you eat an edible or something the evening before, Mm -hmm. uh, you definitely feel foggy the next day, or at least I do. And I think that it kind of dulls your senses a little bit. But I use that as an excuse when in reality, I just felt insecure, you know, so I can see that. So I really didn't smoke a whole lot of weed. I didn't drink too much um, again because I just didn't really enjoy it. But the thing that catapulted me into a very real interest with drugs was mushrooms. Um, Me and my buddy, I was living. It was shortly after turning 18. I was living with my stepbrother, the same stepbrother who I would uh, steal his uh, the crumbs of weed from underneath that tray. Yeah. Um, we were living in this old farmhouse, and he had. He, it was a big party house. Um, it was. It was actually pretty amazing. I've never really experienced anything like it before or since. But we living on my own. I wanted to try hallucinogens, and I had in mind to try acid. But at least at the time, acid was really hard to come by. Yes. Um, and so we ended up getting a hold of some mushrooms. I remember I was at work and it was me and my buddy who was also living there. He gave me a call. He, it was before we had cell phones or anything. Uh, he literally called like the work line at the grocery store that I was working at and asked for me. And I, you know, I got to the phone or whatever. And he's like, dude, I got him. I freaking got him. And I spent like the next two hours of my shift, just like wanting to get out of there so bad. And, uh, I ended up getting home probably around 10 at night and I went upstairs to the room and my buddy was sitting in front of the TV playing like Medal of Honor or something. And uh, he had already taken his. So his eyes, his pupils were all dilated and everything. And and he was trying to 
ask me like do you see that thing on the screen like do you see the stars and like all this all this weird shit and I just like I wanted to be there and so uh he gave me my portion and or mine and my girlfriend at the time's portion and uh we ended up taking them and it was probably within about 20 30 minutes I didn't know what to expect like my idea was I thought I was going to see elves I thought I was going to like, literally, I, th- I thought I was going to see elves and I thought I was going to see like monsters come around the corner. And for whatever reason, I thought that that would be really cool. Looking back, like that would be horrifying. <laughs> yeah. Knowing what I know now, I would definitely not want to see what I wanted to see at the time. But what I did see was I saw like the walls breathing and everything. Definitely. And um, my thought processes became more abstract. Uh, I started to think about just, I guess, things on a what people would say is a deeper level. I was, or at least on a more abstract level, I was coming up with, um, in my head names for the people who were at the party. Uh, you know, like my buddy, he was super, he was all over the place. He basically just wanted to hang out and he didn't really care what we did. He just wanted to be there for it. So he was running around almost like he was bouncing off the walls. And I remember giving him the nickname, the, the busy bee, you know, (laughs) and my girlfriend at the time, she had these, this long brown flowing hair with, um, at the time, like she had highlights of blonde in them and everything. And she was really pretty person. And she was, uh, she was my lioness, you know, (laughs) and it was just total cheese ball-y sort of things. But, um, in, in my head, it was just super fascinating and watching the walls breathe and how everything became slightly distorted and more cartoony. The colors were, were more vibrant. Uh, there was more texture. It just blew me away. And uh, I remember my stepbrother, he was definitely very experienced with mushrooms. We ended up going down and there was a whole house party taking place downstairs. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that is hell. Like, that looks like fucking hell with like just these gaunt individuals who, you know, lines on their faces. It was a completely different scene than what was taking place upstairs. And so we went outside and it was spring and we lived out in the middle of, uh, do you know what hop fields look like? Um, I want to say yes, but, um, uh, uh, could you explain that in more in more detail? Yeah, so so hop fields like hops are the things that you brew beer with, oh, okay. or that you use them to brew beer. And basically, they're these long, the, these huge fields where they basically take um, they almost look like telephone poles, and they prop them up. Some of them are at angles, and then they string wire from one telephone to another that's like twenty feet high. And then basically, hops are vines, and they grow up these. The, the poles and they grow up wires that are hanging down to the ground from other wires. And you end up coming away with like this viney sort of uh, orchard where, okay. you know, you the hop look at, looks a lot like bud, actually. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they're actually in the same family, too. Really? Uh, don't don't quote me on that, but I yeah. I want to say I heard that from somewhere. And uh, at the time, the hops, they weren't super overgrown yet or whatever. They, the fields had just been plowed because it was kind of like early spring, but it was warm enough to be out in the middle of the night. And my stepbrother just told me and my girlfriend, he's like, hey, walk out into the hop fields as far as you can go and I'll just see you later, you know? <laughs> and I don't know if he was trying to scare us or just like trying to give us an experience, like get us to go on like a little journey and just kind of explore. But it turned out to be an amazing night. We ended up finding ourselves kind of over this wooden bridge that, uh, you know, that was spanning a a little ditch, like a little irrigation ditch and the frogs were croaking and everything. You could hear the crickets and you can see the city lights way off in the distance. And, uh, 
me and her just laid there and just kind of like played and talked and uh it was gorgeous and, and it just had like this profound effect on me and i remember going back to the house that night and laying in bed with her and uh like stroking her hair and i realized that like i didn't think of them as closed eye visuals at the time but that's exactly what i was seeing i was seeing like um long blades of grass as i stroked her hair and I was seeing like if I if I kind of like ran my hand down her side, I would see like this um, like this range of hills and just whole landscapes were forming behind my eyelids. It was like a trail that formed into other imagery, right? Yeah, yeah, and it was absolutely amazing. And uh, I just I wanted to. I came to the next day and I wanted to be back there as soon as possible. So I basically developed this fascination for for hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. which basically I, I interpreted it as a growing fascination for drugs, which I think that probably was. And so I continued to try to seek out acid. And uh, again, like I just wasn't finding it. But what I did find was I found uh, I found cocaine. Um, which there is was not a, a hallucinogen by any means. <laughs> no, no. And, and the thing is, is I, I found the dealer. He was actually another kid that was going to the same school that I was. I actually graduated half a year early. So oh, okay. I, um, right after graduating, it was in the wintertime. I moved out and I moved in with my stepbrother. And uh, I still had to go to the graduation ceremony. So approaching that ceremony, I was in and out of the school again. And I was asking people around if, uh, if they could get me acid. And they pointed me in the direction of this one guy. And uh, I went to him and asked if he could get me acid. And he said, yeah, uh, he could, but I had to buy it by the vial. And a vial was $80, right? Only $80. Dude, I think about that now. I'm like, Jesus, why didn't I buy five of them? (laughs) You know, like just fucking load up. Because now, you know, you're looking at vials. I mean, I think the last time I was quoted was like two or $300 for a vial. And that's still insanely cheap. An individual hit I. I mean, last I was offered was like it was ten dollars a hit or something. Yeah, exactly. you know, sometimes twenty depending on what town you're in. You know, yeah, and then most of the time you're just getting a little sheet of paper that half of that time or three quarters of the time it's fucking bunk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he offered me that, and at the time I was like, no, that's too expensive. Is there anything you know? And he's like, well, have you ever tried cocaine? And I was like, no, I haven't tried coke, and. uh you know, my, my perception of cocaine was, uh, in line with public perception, which was cocaine is a bad thing, which I think that's justified to a certain extent, but definitely, um, he, so I was like, no, I'm not really interested in that. And he's like, why? I mean, like that's acid is way worse than cocaine, which I don't know where he's getting his information, but yeah. that's, uh, that's what the information I was fed. And so I was like, okay. And so he ended up getting me some cocaine and, uh, after graduation, that that same day we went back to that same girl's house that I was dating and uh she she had done cocaine before so she drew up a couple lines in her bathroom she was living with her parents so we had to be all super sneaky about it yeah and we did uh we did some cocaine I only did one line and it had to have affected me but I don't I don't remember feeling the effects. I remember feeling nothing from it. But I remember her we would we went out and jumped on the trampoline a little bit and she was she outright said she was trying to figure out how to convince me to do more cocaine so she was definitely feeling it and she was definitely jonesing for more yeah. and uh i think we saved it um 
a few nights later, I ended up trying it again. I remember sitting at now my mom's house. We were watching my parents' house while they were out of town. And I remember doing a larger line and it definitely hit. And I felt that feeling of, you know, um, increased confidence. I had more energy. I was a little more fidgety. I just, uh, I felt more alive, I guess. And so then my interest basically shifted from psychedelics to stimulants (laughs) and uh it went from there um so so wait the the cocaine was less expensive than the vial of acid i mean how much did you were did you uh, uh, did you purchase so at the time i was getting uh i was able to get cocaine uh for half uh for twenty dollars for half a gram oh my god no 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 okay so get this like once i found an established dealer uh-huh. which that's a whole interesting story unto itself, uh, or at least to me it is. Um, I was able to get an eight ball for $80. What? Is yeah, yeah. And, and it was decent. It wasn't the best stuff in the world, but it yeah. was decent, you know? <laughs> that's, yeah, that, wow. Um, I mean, I'm just hoping listeners don't flock over to your state in, in, in thoughts that they can still obtain drugs for that that kind of price it, because that's, that's insane to me for, for anybody who's listening, you can't do that anymore. The last <laughs> time I purchased cocaine, it was a hundred dollars a gram. Yeah. Yeah. Usually 80 to a hundred dollars and the eight ball is like, yeah, three fifty, four hundred, maybe even more depending on the quality. It's, it's what I, I mean, I've noticed that cocaine is usually one of the most stepped on and, and cut drugs out there. I mean, now heroin is kind of overseeing that with fentanyl, but um, we, we were getting, well, that's, that's, that's like a horrible thing unto itself. Like it's, it is super stepped on. It's so short acting. Um, it's amazing to see one type of drug get stepped on so much to where it decreases. It actually, it, it decreases the value of the high because I mean, it literally decreases the high. You have to do more to achieve the same effects where other things in the industry like marijuana and even heroin, uh, well, marijuana, I think, is is trending towards becoming more and more pure, uh, using less and less pesticides and just getting it as potent as possible, which comes with its own set of hangups. Whereas heroin, even though it's being stepped on with fentanyl, which by no means is safe and is completely irresponsible, mm-hmm. it's being stepped on in a way that increases the high, the value of the high, I would say. Yeah. And um yeah, and it's like cocaine and heroin are almost like polar opposites where it's like cocaine, you're constantly having to feed the monkey and do more and more, whereas heroin, usually you, you just do one shot and to, and for it'll last usually around, you know, six to eight hours. But, um, I mean, my my personal opinion on, on that is that, that the whole rise in fentanyl use is kind of uh, contributed uh, from the Ill- illegalities and the, the black markets that are that prop up from the drug war itself. But um, not to get off topic, but, you know, um, it just seems like the, the longer we, we have this, ever since Nixon declared the war on drugs, you know, drugs have only become more potent and more rampant within our, within our country, which, um, you know, I know politicians kind of, some of them have good intentions and whatnot, but it seems like they're kind of sitting upon their ivory tower, handing down legislations on policies 
that affect people and cultures they know literally nothing about. Um, and the effects can be seen as plain as day in, in what's been going on. But, um, um, so would you say, I mean, you said you were, you were trying to find acid and then you, um, uh, incidentally found cocaine. Would you say your drug use split, um, into less use of psychedelics and more use of stimulants or, um, were you kind of still experimenting and playing around with, with various different substances? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I still sought out hallucinogens. Like I still was on a search for acid. I would buy mushrooms whenever I could. Um, but I had gained an interest in stimulants, which also led me to pills, um, which ended up leading me to meth. And, uh, and so stimulants definitely projected me into a journey into, I guess, uh, a darker, more grimy side of substance use. Um, and being over in Yakima, they were, they were much easier to come by, you know, on my search for, for acid, you know, I ended up coming across a guy that I was working with who he seemed like a normal guy. He didn't seem like a druggie or anything, but, uh, he was looking back on it. I I believe he started, he got into meth fairly recently before me and him actually met because it, there wasn't, I didn't see the effects of meth on him, you know? Yeah. And so I came across him and I respected him. He was actually one of my uh, superiors at work. And um, I would talk to him about acid and the effects of acid. And he, he he had told me that, you know, acid is like before you take acid, um, you look at a light switch and a light bulb and you look at it as if you turn on the light switch, the light bulb will turn on. But after taking acid, when you think about turning the light switch on, you think about all of the electrical connections in the walls and how they how they go up to that light bulb and turn that light bulb on. And so that really just uh, amplified my interest in it. But then he dropped the little bomb of like, you know, have you ever tried smoking meth? And uh, <laughs> and and respecting him and seeing how he seemed normal, he was normal. Um, I became interested in that, and so. Again, like in my search for hallucinogens, I came across other things and meth was meth also turned out to be a profound thing for me. So in in what ways would you say it, you had a profound experience with meth? Was it similar to your experience with cocaine or was it was it different at all? Uh, it was very similar to cocaine. It was just amplified and it lasted a lot longer. Um, it allowed like the first time I smoked meth. um I went over to this guy's house who I worked with or not his house. I went over to one of their, his buddy's houses and it was a typical two story out in the middle of uh, the fields, sort of a farmhouse. And you walk inside and there wasn't any furniture or anything like they had sold all their shit. <laughs> <laughs> and the only stuff that they had was in each of their individual bedrooms, you know, which I'm yeah. sure they I, I could imagine they locked up whenever they left. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and uh, we went into there his room and uh, I had already I guess placed an order so they had my meth and uh, they gave me a baggie and it turned out to be crystal oh, right wow. yeah. uh, it was legitimate like crystal meth Pure. shards yeah. I yeah yeah I guess at the time there was a distinction between ice crystal and um, crank. and and crank yeah that was the word crank mm-hmm. and but I had cr- 
what they claimed to be crystal. And it was definitely like crystal shards. And uh, I remember smoking that. I don't remember feeling high, but at the time, me and this girl that I was dating, the same girl that I did mushrooms with, that I did coke with, um, me and her were in an argument. And I remember she was also familiar with meth. The guy that she was dating before me, he was a meth addict and she actually broke up with him for it. I think it was part of the reason we were in an argument was because I was expressing a desire to try meth. Uh And so obviously she was worried. Definitely. And so I smoked some meth and I remember it it had like this milky taste to it. Um, It wasn't unpleasant. It was slightly chemically. I don't remember it burning or anything. They instructed me like, you know, when you inhale, make sure you kick it back out of your lungs fairly fast or it will actually crystallize. I don't know if any of this is true, but, you know, looking at the meth residue inside of a glass bulb, that shit does crystallize, (laughs) you know, and uh, I went home and I just immediately I was apologizing to her and like telling her that just, I was basically, uh, I was under the influence of meth, you know, and I, I was just trying to be, I was super sentimental and everything. And she tried to tell me, she's like, this is the meth talking. This is the fucking meth. But, uh, I ended up getting her to smoke with me cause I had brought my little bit home and yeah. we ended, we ended up, uh, smoking and then pretty much having sex all night long. Yeah. And, uh, and that that really kind of sealed the deal because not only did I have this sense of confidence and, um, this lack of social anxiety, which is kind of always present with me. Like I'm not a super anxious person right now. I'm anxious for whatever reason, but like for the most part, I, there's some sort of anxiety always present with me, but not an extreme amount. It's not debilitating, yeah. but meth along with Coke took it all away. And then on top of that, it amplified my sex drive. Like just to the nth degree. And, uh, as a teenager, as an 18 year old, that those, those two things are extremely appealing, especially like I would get this, um, like electric feeling running through my body, almost kind of like a, a mild full body orgasm or something. And I just, it was just a lot. It was just amazing. And, uh, I, I quickly learned that that was the thing that I liked a lot, you know? Do you think, I mean, honestly, um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of teenagers naturally feel that kind of social anxiety or, or anxiety in general that you're referring to. Um, but um, w- my main question would be, um, you know, you, you're talking about your experiences um, and, you know, I, I've told you some of mine. But, uh, what did, did it, did your drug use ever take a turn for the worse where you kind of, um, saw red flags or situations where you, that made you take a step back and realize that you needed to, um, kind of put a a boundary on, on your experimentation? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it basically started with meth. Um, the, the first instance was, uh, me and a bunch of these guys were over at my house in this little basement apartment that me and my buddy were living in and my girlfriend. 
and uh, we were all sitting around. It was probably one or two in the morning and we were smoking meth and we were playing dice. Uh, I think the game was Bones or something. I don't even oh, remember yeah. how to play it, but we were just sitting our, around doing that all fucking night. And around one or two in the morning, the girls had gone out to go have a cigarette outside just to kind of like get away from all the smoke and like talk or whatever they were going to do. And at the time, the guy that I was living with, he also had a girlfriend, uh, but she was away. Um, and, uh, her name was Tia. And, uh, when the girls came back in the, the, there was a wall that separated the view from the entrance to the living room. And so when the girls came back in, we heard the door open and then right away, the girls said, uh, the cops are here. Oh no. And, uh, I didn't, I, I'm a pretty, I I'm just naive, you know, like I don't, I'm, I'm pretty trusting. Uh, again, I'm middle class. I've never been in trouble with the law then or since. And uh, I didn't, I just actually laughed. I was like, oh, what a joke, right? <laughs> but one of the dudes that was with us, like he fucking, he grabbed, I remember him grabbing the pipe and the baggie off the table as fast as possible and just jamming it down into the couch cushion. Yeah. And uh, sure as shit, not a second later, the girls came around the corner and the two cops fall. No, three cops followed. Oh, no. And they're like, hey, how's it going, guys? What are you up to? And we're just sitting there like, oh, we're just we're just playing dice. Like the rooms reeked of cigarettes. And, you know, you had to have smelt like that milky sort of a smell of meth. Yeah. And they had to have known what was going on. But they had a warrant uh, to arrest Tia. Jesus. Right. And so they came to serve that warrant. And so they're like, Hey, we just, uh, is she here? And we're like, no. And she's like, all right, is it cool if we search, search around, see if she's around? And they're like, yeah, of course we couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. As far as I was aware anyways. And so they searched the apartment. One of the cops hung out with us and just like, we just sat there and like, you know, um, usually when, when shit again, like I'm a fairly anxious person, but when shit hits the fan, my mind kind of goes blank and I, get this sense of calmness, almost like this sense of accepting where it's like, all right, well, whatever happens is going to happen. And I think I had that sense, but you know, everybody else is like super shifty eyed. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't find Tia, the cops left and everybody just like sat there in this long moment of silence, like, holy fuck. And I think I was the first one to talk and I was like, Hey, yeah, I was literally like, Hey, you want to let's smoke a little bit more. <laughs> you know? And everybody's like, no, let's just, let's just sit here for a second. They were completely bugged out. And so yeah. that was, uh, that was an instance where I was like, okay, I got, I have to be careful because I'm closer to being reprimanded than what I realize, you know, these, the, the possibility of being caught is closer than I think. Um, the second thing was I was working with my mom at this grocery store. She worked in a separate section. Mm -hmm. but I would see her almost on a daily basis. And I remember her asking me, this was probably about a month in to my meth use where I was, I was smoking meth. Probably I was doing it on every day off. I had off, you know? Uh -huh. And she started to notice that I look, was starting to look sick, like bags under my eyes. Um, cause I was staying up not for days on end. I think my longest stretch was like 48 hours or 72 hours. Okay. But, um, I, that kind of stuck with me. I was like, Oh shit. Now people are starting to notice there's a change in me that I'm not perceiving in myself. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, uh, I ended up getting a, a different position, which required that I get up earlier in the morning and I, and I was now at full time 
So I was working 40 hours a week and I, I just easily put it together. I was like, okay, this isn't going to be able to sustain itself. Like I'm not going to be able to do meth anymore. Plus like the stigma surrounding it. Um, I, I didn't want to be viewed as a druggie, I guess, you know, my behavior could say otherwise, but I didn't want to outright look like a druggie or something. And so I was like, okay, I got to stop smoking meth. So I'm just going to go back to Coke. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, the, the biggest red flag for me was that, um, I found that all I wanted to spend my money on was Coke. Like every time I had, I got paid, I would immediately call my girlfriend and we would be like, all right, well, what do you want to do this evening? And, you know, lo and behold, we can't think of anything else to do, but Coke. And so I would call the dealer, get some Coke and then go and do Coke for the evening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember telling myself like by this time I was smoking cigarettes and I kind of understood a little bit about a cigarette addiction and cocaine was a similar way. And that with cigarettes, you know, right after you smoke a cigarette, you tell yourself, like, especially if you're wanting to quit, you're like, "Ah, I don't need this shit. I can quit. I don't want to do it anymore. But then a couple hours later, your mind completely changes and you're like, oh, like that, that was I didn't really mean that. I enjoy smoking <laughs> cigarettes. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're literally combating yourself. Um, and I started experiencing that with Coke where I would come down and be like, all right, I don't want to do this anymore. But then four or five days later after getting paid, I would, that would be the best idea, you know, to the point where I would get Coke, I would go to money tree and get an advanced payday loan yep. so that I could go get Coke. And then a few days later, I would have to like make that walk of shame back into money tree and use my fucking paycheck to pay, to pay it back. Yeah. And so the, the, I, I started to realize that I was wanting to spend my money on it. And so I tried several times to spend my money elsewhere before I had the opportunity to go get Coke. So I would like go to the video game store and I would buy video games. Like I'd spend my money except for what I had to buy groceries with and what I had to pay bills with. And I realized that not even that worked because I would just go back to money tree, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which is, and so that was the first indication that I had, I was developing some sort of an issue. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was able to kick it, but it really wasn't on my own. I ended up uh, moving over to Seattle, uh, by this time, me and this girl, we had broken up and I started dating another girl who had recently moved to Seattle. And so I moved over with her and she knew that I was kind of doing cocaine. And she basically said like, uh, you just can't do that over here. And so I moved to Seattle with the intention to stop doing cocaine. And, uh, and I was, I was able to quit, you know, I've done it since, uh-huh. but it was, it hasn't been on like a weekly basis. I would say, I average doing cocaine like once every two or three years. Wow, that's that's fascinating because, um, you know, in, in my experience, it was it was something I was not able to control myself, or at least my drug use evolved into something where, I mean, I, I would um, I was able to put it down here and there, but I would always find myself relapsing and then, you know, it, going deeper and deeper down the depths of uh, kind of misery. And you know what else is funny is like I still I have like three different cash advance locations in Los Angeles I still need to pay back so I <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling I I kind of I kind of wonder if the difference like it because I know that you and me kind of took slightly 
like very different paths yeah. um, where you like you continue to use where I would kind of um, recognize and then find a way to get away from. Yeah. And there's a part of me that sometimes wonders if I was just too self-conscious about how other people perceived me or something like a lot of my draw away from drugs was one, the come down, like the, the come down of stimulants fucking sucks. It's, oh yeah, it's, horrible. it's the worst. And then two, I didn't want to be perceived as a druggie, you know, yeah. where I kind of wonder if other people, um, and again, like, I don't, I don't mean to speak for you. Like I could be no. completely off base, but this is just what I perceive right now. Uh, other people like you, you, you weren't as insecure socially. Um, no, yeah, I would definitely say that's accurate. I mean, well, I mean, it, I was insecure in other, in other areas, but, uh, I, I was less affected by the social stigma of, of, uh, drug use and the drug culture. And, um, I was more drawn to it and flaunted it, I guess. Uh, I thought it was kind of like, um, activist and rebellious, you know, I equated weed smoking to how people may have done during the seventies, like in when they would, you know, smoke weed almost in a protest of like the Vietnam war or something. And, um, for me, uh, I mean, there were so there were like, I guess back then I, I drew a lot of similar similarities to your story and that, um, certain drugs, I, I felt like I was above like, Oh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hang out with the tweakers or the junkies or, but then, you know, as time progressed, I kind of caved and, um, started in, intermingling with, with all the different drug crowds. And I may not have been open and honest about it back then. You know, I kind of kept that hidden from my, my stoner friends or my, my hippie psychedelic friends. But, um, I, I, you know, I knew deep down that I felt, um, like a wave of uh, anxiety wash away over me when I would do those substances. So I was always still drawn to them. But, um, I think, uh, you know, and even back then I would, um, I would recognize red flags a lot more often and, and I would put it down. Um, but I think I, I reacted to certain situations or traumatic experiences happening in my life in such a reactionary way on like an emotional level where, I, I, it was almost like a muscle memory in my brain where I was like, I knew, you know, all the, the fear or, um, stress or depression could, could easily be dissolved away by using drugs. And so I just kept going back and back. And then, you know, finally I, I, I had to recognize that more and more uh, horrible events were unfolding in my life because of those kind of reactionary and impulsive behaviors of mine. Um, uh, what I w what I wanted to kind of touch in on or, or, or ask is, um, you know, you, you had mentioned, um, in our conversations before that you, you had gotten involved in the, in the cannabis industry and, um, you know, what, like how, how did that opportunity kind of come about for you? Oh, okay. So, um, at the time I was working, uh, so I was living in the town that I currently live in now and I was in college and before coming into college, well, that that's kind of beside the point. I having student loans, I became interested in, uh, growing weed. I had never grown weed before. I had never seen a weed plant. I had never seen like live bud or anything. And I wanted to do that. And so 
I started a little weed garden and a little two by two tent. I was using, uh, you know, one of those California light works, uh, 220 watt led lights uh-huh. and, uh, it was a soil grow and everything. I made like a scrog and, oh, yeah. uh, screen, right? of green. Yeah, screen yeah. of green. Yeah. And, uh, I, there was this girl that I knew from my chemistry class who would throw these kind of little parties. She called them nerd ins, nerd ins. What's a nerd in? Uh, it's, it's this party. I don't know if she came up with a name or if it's something that's kind of popular in other places, but basically what it is, is you get together with a bunch of people and you, everybody brings a plate. It's kind of like a potluck or whatever and bring oh. drinks. And, uh, you, there are a series of presenters in the evening that basically share information and present some specific subject that they're versed in. So, oh, wow. You know, there was one about uh, delivering babies. Um, <laughs> there was another about bike repair. Um, the, but I was invited to this one nerd in, and one of the presenters was titled um, What It's Like to Own a Weed Farm. This was within the first year of marijuana becoming legalized in Washington. Oh, what year, what year did it become legal in Washington? Shit, I, I think it was like, was it 2013? 14 or 2015 maybe yeah i think it was around there i don't know the exact year but it was very recent um or or at this time it was really recent and i just couldn't miss it because i i wanted to be able to talk to this guy about growing before that i didn't have anybody else to talk to i was browsing forums and everything for all the information that i needed and so i just kind of wanted to geek out to somebody definitely and so I went to this nerd in and the guy presented um, and I went up to him afterwards and I was basically telling him how I had my own little grow going or whatever. And, you know, he had a fucking weed farm. So he he was cool. Like he was totally friendly, but probably fairly unimpressed. He's like, all right, yeah, you and a billion other people, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, uh, but I asked, I was like, is there any way you would be open to giving me a field trip <laughs> to your farm. Yeah. And, uh, he's like, yeah, for sure. For sure. Nice. So that weekend, uh, I ended up going to his, to his farm and browsing and actually seeing just all these weed plants. He was doing a hydroponic setup, uh, like a deep water culture sort oh, of a yeah. deal. Okay. And, uh, he had some amazing looking plants, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, then he was like, you know, if I, I'll be looking for, well, no, he, he was basically like, you know, you can come back. I'm always looking for volunteers to trim. Yeah. And I had never trimmed weed. And I was like, oh, my God, that would be totally cool. And so I agreed to do that. And I came back, trimmed with him for probably about eight hours or so on another weekend. And uh, I did that probably for three or four days with him. Uh, definitely long enough to realize that trimming sucks. Uh, yeah, it's it's just su- super <laughs> tedious. What was nice is like, he'd just buy like a six pack of beer or whatever. And we'd sit up there and trim bud and, and, uh, drink beer. Um, this is, this was probably super illegal at the time. It is super illegal. Uh, I still work in the industry. So, but at the time I didn't know it, he was allowing me to take home, uh, the little scissor hash. Yep. You know, definitely. uh, and, uh, I'm sure the listeners know what that is, or maybe maybe they don't. But basically, scissor hash is the when you trim weed, you have all the trichomes on yeah, the bud, on the sugar leaf do. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you get all those trichomes sticking to your scissor blades. And if you take like a razor blade and you know you scrape that gunk off over time, roll it into a ball, you come away with this really hashy, fairly potent material Definitely. that you can let dry, take home, and smoke. 
And, uh, so he was letting me do that. And, uh, having trimmed with him volunteered, I was doing it completely for free, except for him buying me lunch, buying me beer and let me take this hash home. Um, he, he was like, you know, I can't pay you right now. I don't necessarily have the funds, but, uh, in, I know I'm going to need employment. I'm going to need a, an employee in the near future. So if you're open to that, that would be, that would be pretty cool. I'll give you a call. And so I was like, yeah, definitely. I would love to. Cause also at the time, you know, I was in school and I told myself that I was going to work for the restaurant that I was working at, which was a large chain. It was a large chain restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I told myself that after the first year living up here, um, I wanted to work for a more local place, like work closer to town instead of on the outskirts where like all the Canadians come down to do their shopping at the major mall that's here. Um, and you know, a couple months passed and he didn't get back to me. I actually forgot about the whole conversation. I didn't help trim after that. But one day I got a call from him and he said, Hey, I'm I'm actually looking for an employee and, uh, I want to know if you're interested. And so me and him met, and, uh, he offered me, you know, I, I knew I was going to be pay, taking a pay cut. I was serving food at the time and you get, you know, minimum wage plus tips on top of that. And that's enough to sustain, like you, that's a pretty good wage. Um, and so I knew I was going to take a pay cut, but he offered me more than what I was expecting. And so I found myself now in an environment in the 502 industry, which mm-hmm. is the weed industry in Washington state. Um, and I was working at a farm. It was just me and the owner and, uh, he basically taught me how to grow hydroponically, uh, how to trim weed, um, everything, you know, take clones, all yeah. that stuff. And so that's that's where I was. Um, and eventually that that farm went under. Uh, if there's anybody listening who is in the 502 industry, you, you can probably understand like being in a tier one a, in order for a tier one to operate maximally or, or financially that's financially sustainable, you kind of, at least as far as I know, need more than the owner and one employee, uh, to run it, oh, you know, definitely. and, uh, that's all we were operating on. And, uh, we got a couple more employees eventually, but the, the whole thing tanked. It was really sad to watch this business just slowly fall into decline to the point where, you know, you need the lights to grow the bud but when the lights start failing, your yields go down, which means you don't have as much bud to sell, which means you don't have as much money to replace those light fixtures or those lights and those fixtures, yeah. which causes those, you know, in the end, the lights got dimmer and dimmer. The bud became less and less. The, a pest issue came into play. Oh, yeah. And uh, the whole thing just he was able to sell it. He was able to sell his license. And I don't know how well he did off of that. But um the new farm that took its place is doing really well, but I don't work for them. I ended up getting a job, uh, for, for an edibles company and that's where I work now. And so, um, what kind of edibles do you guys manufacture? Uh, I, we make, uh, we make chocolates, we make, um, gummies, we make these kind of, uh, lozenges, like little suckers that you pop into your mouth. But I'm, I'm specifically, I don't make those edibles. There's other people, other departments to do that. I'm their, I'm their resident extractor. So I'm the one that's taking the marijuana and, um, processing it and turning it into, uh, concentrates, concentrate specifically RSO. Okay. Can you describe the, the process of an RSO extraction or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, RSO extraction is, 
is pretty simple. Um, the, the main core of it is you're basically trying to separate the THC from the plant material mm-hmm. and then decarb that THC to make it active orally because THC isn't active um, orally unless you remove an acid group called a, it's called carboxylic acid. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes active to where you can eat it and you'll get high. But to kind of, so that's like the main core of it. But basically what you do is you take weed and then you expose it to a certain solvent, whether it's alcohol, butane, propane, heptane, um, whatever. And you get those THC molecules to migrate from the plant material into the solvent. And then it's your job to separate the plant material from, from the, THC soaked solvent. You can do that through a series of filters. And then you have to separate the solvent from the THC. I'm actually going to call it THCA because it still has the acid group associated uh, attached to it. Uh-huh. And so you separate the THCA from the alcohol, whether, you know, whether it's through evaporation, through distillation, um, whatever. And then you basically have, you have this syrupy molassesy looking gunk, which is now just THC rich oil or THCA rich oil. And then you apply heat to that in order to remove that carboxylic acid group. Uh, you basically convert it into CO2 and that floats off into the environment. And then you're left with oil that you can stick right onto your tongue and get blasted. And then, um, that, Concentrate is then like uh, kind of cooked or heated into like uh, a fatty kind of um, material like butter or oil for your edibles or? Yeah, you can take that concentrate. And as long as your edibles, I, again, I don't know the, the exact process that people use uh, or that they use out in the kitchen because I'm pretty much back in a room isolated on my own. Like, yeah. um, but as, as far as I'm aware, you, you take some fatty substance because THC needs some sort of um, nonpolar uh, thing to, to bind to or attract to. Yeah. Um, and that can be like a fat. It can be a solvent uh, like alcohol or butane or whatever, just as long as it's nonpolar. And uh, that, you know, you, you can mix that RSO into that fatty substance i'm assuming they're using butter i know you know i know we use coconut oil um, all all this stuff and uh yeah in the end you make edibles um do you use specific uh like indica or sativa dominant strains for your edibles because i know depending on on the strains they're also they also have different uh compounds or various types of thc i know there's thcv and and other and other types of ones but do you, do you have like indica or sativa specific edibles as well? Yeah. Yeah. So, so everything that I do is strain specific. I don't combine strains. Um, so, you know, I, I try to keep in stock, um, uh, a few different types of indicas, a few different types of hybrids, a few different types of sativas so that we can kind of pick and choose what we want to throw out into the market, you know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, I mean, for me, I've noticed like I, I used to like when, um, proposition two fifteen passed here and there was this big industry boom, uh, OG Kush was like a very popular strain. And I know there's a bunch of, um, different various things that, uh, distinguish it differently from other strains. Um, 
but uh, I was always drawn to sativas towards the end because it gave me, you know, I, I was less lazy. I was more motivated. I, I felt it sparked my creativity more. And, um, but uh, what, and I also started growing sativas, but what I had f- come to find is, um, depending on the, the phenotype, uh, of whatever strain sativas take, can take a lot longer to grow during the flower cycle than, you know, a Bubba Kush or whatnot. Usually I found like a Bubba Kush, which was a really resilient strain. It would take, you know, about seven, eight weeks to flower. Whereas, um, I had the, I had, was growing a moonshine haze and some of the phenotypes from the seed pack I had obtained could take, you know, uh, 10, 12, sometimes up to 16 weeks flower time. So what I've noticed, at least in California is, um, it, it, it's sometimes harder to come across a strong sativa because some of these, you know, kind of makeshift, uh, amateur growers would either, uh, cut them down prematurely or they would just w- wouldn't grow them at all because they would get more harvest cycles in per year. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've come across the same or seen this similar situations occurring with like sativa specific strains or not. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, the, the market, you know, I'm, I'm also the buyer for the company, so I get to hunt around for, for new strains or, or new producers or just buy from existing producers, especially, uh, but I am presented with more hybrids mm-hmm. and more indicas than I am sativas. Definitely. For sure. And that's, that's a financially, it just, it's just more financially viable for them. Like what you were saying, mm-hmm. it just takes longer to grow them. Oftentimes your yields aren't as high with a pure sativa. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you can sit there and you can be like, oh, I can get four harvests per year uh, growing indicas or hybrids, whereas I can get three growing sativas, Yeah, you know, I'm going to make more money with the four harvests than I am with sativas, especially with you t- when you take like a cola dense, uh, indica, yeah. you can get so much weight off of that. Whereas sativas, they tend to be longer, more spindly, uh, smaller buds yeah. from my experience. Yeah. Mine too. Um, it's just been kind of fascinating how the industry has evolved over time. Um, it was, it's kind of, uh, similar to like, I guess how the culture of people who have like wineries here or people who, who taste different types of wines, there's like really, um, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's taken on a different, like it's, at least I think it's starting to take on a different culture and crowd of, of, of users where, you know, before, you know, like the medical um, legislation or even legalization, it was a much more like this is the hippie stoner crowd. And now a lot of people are, are coming out of the woodworks and, and a lot of professional people are, are partaking or being more open about it, at least from what I've noticed. And um, do you think the, would do you think the policy and regulations in your state are, are good right now? Or do you think that there still needs to be some kind of work around that? I know, or at least I'd read in Washington state um, when, when it was first legalized that, uh, um, police could, uh, enforce, uh, the drawing of blood to determine if there was THC in someone's, uh, system and, and charge them with a DUI. Is that still, is that still, uh, in effect or, or what, like, what would you say, um, if anything could be done to better the, the policies in your state in this whole industry? So I, 
I don't know. I don't know if that policy is still in effect where they can draw blood. I understand why it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and and to preface, I don't I don't know policy all that well. Like I basically yeah. just sit back in my room and extract and do whatever the fuck I want, yeah. um, just as long as I get the job done, right? Uh, but I I know that right now we're kind of. Th- uh, not, I don't know if it's legislation, but re- legislation, but regulations are are cracking down on like the colors and the packaging and everything that oh, you can really? use. Yes, yes, and it's basically to make it less kid friendly. Like you don't want to come out with a marijuana edible that looks like a goddamn Kit Kat bar, <laughs> you know. Um, and I can completely understand that. I think that it that that idea has uh, children's best interests in mind because neuronally they, they have so much more they need to develop, you know, and, and we don't really know, we don't have a, the greatest idea about how these drugs impact, uh, neural development, you know, brain development. Yeah. And And so, especially since like we're coming up with such higher, uh, percentages of THC, I think, you know, the brain isn't really fully formed until about age 25, I, I assume. They're, they're upping that number. Like, I mean, it's, it was at 25. There's other studies that suggest it's closer to 30, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I don't need, and I'm, I'm pretty sure or certain there's not enough research done on, um, on how really high THC like percentage concentrates affect the brain, even in comparison with studies done, you know, even, you know, a decade ago. So, so, so the, I guess, okay. So to go back and, and answer your questions, like, I think that the, the policies they they're there with the consumer's best interests in mind. Uh, I also think that you know we're doing our best to dip our toes into this this whole thing. Like this is a, a social experiment, Definitely. and I I believe in this experiment. I'm okay if it doesn't work out. I'm okay if like we decide that no, this is actually, this is too consequential for society. Society is breaking down to a point that is unacceptable. If, yeah, if that, if that happens, if we determine that, then I think that, okay, we gave it a fair shot and that's okay. On the other hand, I think that it's nice to see that we are slowly being given back. We as consumers, as just people are being given back our right to our own minds. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't like the fact that I sit in my house and there's somebody out there who's telling me what I can and cannot do with my consciousness, you know, Oh yeah. especially when it's victimless, like laying around taking mushrooms. Yeah, there's going to be a few instances. There are instances where people go running out of their house or whatever and scare other people. Mm-hmm. or break down into some psycho psychotic state. But I, I feel like those instances are not the norm, you know? Yeah. And so I, I'm glad that we're being given this chance. We're dipping our toes in this because I think it'll, um, it, it's going to open the door for the possibility of other substances becoming illegal. Colorado decriminalizing magic mushrooms. Yeah. Right. I, I think that this is, a. Uh, it's this is starting to progress and we're starting to give people responsibility for themselves back to them. Um, but as far as the policy goes, the policies go. Yeah, I think that we're trying to be as careful as we can about it. And I understand 
why we're doing that as far as blood drawing goes, like police being allowed to do that, even if that were outright okay, like if, if they were allowed to do that, I can also kind of understand that be, what they're actually doing. Because if you, if you eat an edible and then you go for a drive and it starts to hit you, I don't, I really, I don't really care what other people say. You're fucking inebriated, <laughs> you know, or like, so if you smoke it, yeah. Or, or I mean, if you take a decent edible, uh, you're going to get fucked up. It becomes a little psychedelic, Oh yeah. you know, and I would rather I bike everywhere. Like I have a vehicle, but I bike everywhere I go and I've been hit once that wasn't hurt or anything. Shit. Right. But I would rather bike down the road and feel like the cars that are passing me, one, aren't on their phones and yeah. two, aren't intoxicated in any way. You know what I mean? There's yeah. no distraction of the mind. And marijuana kind of uh, puts a little wrench in that because you can eat an edible and you can't do a breathalyzer, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you could, uh, an officer could pull somebody over and recognize that like, ah, this person's kind of fucked up. There's something going on with them, you know, or they were driving just a little bit weird. Again, I don't care if people say that they drive better when they're stoned. I still say that like, you're still kind of gambling a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not pissed at people for doing that. I mean, it's not like I hate people who drive stoned. I've driven stoned. I've driven drunk. I've driven, uh, on all sorts of things. And I shouldn't have, and I recognize that and it was completely irresponsible of me. However, when police officers are presented with this situation, um, I like the idea that they can find out if this person is actually stoned. I, I do think that is, there is an invasion of privacy issue there, like an invasion of inherent biological privacy of inserting a needle into somebody's skin to draw blood. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't really know until there's some other technology to 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 be able to measure this. I don't know how else they can measure. It's not just THC content they're measuring. If I'm right, if I if I remember correctly, what happens is when THC is metabolized in your body, it's converted into another form of THC or another molecule. Mm -hmm. And that transformation occurs at a predictable rate. And so what you can do is you can compare THC levels to this new molecule level, and you can determine time of ingestion. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Right? So because if, if I'm right, like they could just have somebody piss, you know, okay, yeah. we, we got to do a piss test on the spot. Then you wouldn't be sticking a fucking metal syringe into somebody's skin, yeah. right? Yeah. And I don't know if, if a piss test would accomplish the same thing that a blood draw would do, but this enables officers to determine, uh, if that person is actually intoxicated. And at least for me, again, I don't hate this, this intox, this hypothetical intoxicated person. Um, in fact, I kind of feel sorry for him that they're kind of being, uh, invaded upon yeah. like that. But at the same time, that was their decision to, to, to ingest and then go and drive. Like they got to claim some sort of responsibility. They know they're not supposed to do it. Even if they think they can drive better, which I, I mean, honestly, like I, I sound almost like a hypocrite because I just got done saying that I don't like sitting in my apartment and being told what I can and can't do with my consciousness. You know, yeah. when this per hypothetical person driving might firmly believe that they are, 
a better driver when they're stoned or it doesn't affect them at all. You know, however, me being a pedestrian that's literally next to mirrors flying by my head, um, I, I would rather them be sober. No, you know? I can I can see both sides of the argument, and you know, yeah, I think yeah. I think substances affect each individual differently. So it's kind of up to the individual to take responsibility for understanding um, how safe they they can be, un, you know, inebriated. But I mean, it's it, I think the policy is there, and and the whole industry in general has kind of been this um, kind of beta testing, uh, trial and error experiment. And I think over time, I'm I'm hoping that you know, new legislations will be passed to kind of fine tune what's been going on. Cause I think it's a great thing. Uh, you know, I think people are going to use drugs, whether there's a law in place for them or not. And, um, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm correct about this, but I even thought that Oregon was trying to pass the legalization of psilocybin mushrooms. I, that, I mean, that could have just been a decriminalization bill, but, um, you know, I know a lot of people in the industry that I had talked to who were, who were, um, cultivating marijuana, we're all saying, you know, the real money is in, in the psilocybin mushroom industry. Cause it's such, you know, uh, it takes so much less equipment to grow and, uh, you just need a sterile environment. It's this fungus that spreads on itself. But, um, I know we're getting at, um, in a little over an hour, I just wanted to ask you one last thing, which was pertaining to your, to your podcast. Um, what, what inspired you to, to start psychotropic and, um, was there any event or anything that happened that that um, motivated you to start that project? Um, so, yeah, I when I was I was in my early 20s and I was working for a kayak manufacturing shop. I was their thermoformer and I started listening to a lot of podcasts because I had gone through my whole playlist or whatever on my iPod that I had at the time and I needed more listening material. So I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was listening to, and I found Joe Rogan fairly yeah, quickly. Me too. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. I loved interest. I loved listening to him talk about DMT and psilocybin. Right. Yeah. And I also found this uh, podcast called psychedelic salon which oh. is uh, hosted by this guy named Lorenzo. And it's ba he basically features these long clips and, um, you know, uh, talks given by people like Terrence McKenna oh, yeah. and Ram Das and nice. all of these people. And they're all, you know, it's really gritty, kind of bad audio just because this is audio taken from the mid-90s, yeah. early 90s. Uh, but I loved listening to these stories about psychedelics, and uh, I just liked listening to the banter surrounding the ideas of drug use. And so at the time, I was like, dude, I, I, I could do that. Like, I could make a podcast that was just drug-centric. And this was back in, you know, back in 2008, right? Oh, wow. okay. uh, and so I don't think there was really much of anything uh, there was Psychedelic Salon. There was, you know, Joe Rogan. I'm sure there was other podcasts out there that I just wasn't seeing when I browsed iTunes, but there definitely wasn't Dopey. There wasn't anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so I had actually gotten like a little mic to record and I had put out an ad on Craigslist and got a few hits, um, but nothing ever came of it. I never even interviewed anybody. And so you know, life went on. I've didn't, I stopped working at the kayak place. I wasn't able to listen to podcasts. Um, but eventually I found myself back in a situation, specifically the job that I'm at now, 
mm-hmm. uh, where I was able to listen to a lot of podcasts. And again, that I, but by this time I had started listening to Dopey. Like I started listening to Dopey when I think they were about 18 episodes in oh, or wow. something. Yeah, me too, um, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and at the time, like they're completely entertaining. I loved listening to them, but I also recognized, uh, I like, again, like I love dopey, but the audio quality was shit. <laughs> you yeah, know? Well, I mean, I think back then they were recording on the mic built into their, their laptop. So yeah, 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 for <laughs> sure. For sure. And so I would listen to this and almost after every episode, I would be like, man, I, why don't I do, why don't I do the drug? Oh wait. Okay. So I got to back up again. Listening to Joe Rogan. I thought it would be cool to, to, I already said all that, didn't I? <laughs> I'm oh, fucking, no. I'm tripping over myself. <laughs> no, you're fine. Okay. So the idea of making a drug centric podcast popped back into my mind specifically because of dopey and listening to other podcasts. And I'm not a very creative person. So this was, um, it was kind of a big deal for me because I was, I felt like I was thinking of something that was at least somewhat unique, you know, and I kind of believed in it for multiple reasons. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, after listening to Dopey and everything and listening to them become more and more popular and actually getting better at their craft, yeah. uh, I decided that I was going to start doing something like that. By this time I had graduated college, um, and I was just kind of, I guess, aimless, uh, outside of work. I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was kind of having a slight existential crisis just because I was like on my own, you know? And, uh, I didn't have like college just like pushing me down these tracks. And so I had a little bit of money left over from student loans. So I went out, uh, got the mic and everything. And I basically, if there's one thing I learned in college, it's basically that you can take something complex, this complex idea and actually make something out of it. If you just start doing one step at a time, just taking things as they come. And the idea of generating a podcast, especially when you start looking into it, I'm not really computer savvy. So there was a lot of things that I had to learn, but I just told myself, I'm like, no, I don't have anything better to do. I'm just going to start learning this stuff. One thing, one at a time, one at a time. And I already had the idea for what I wanted to do. Uh, I listened to another podcast called love and radio, Okay. which, which that's, I'm basically ripping them off. That's <laughs> I between it, it started off with the idea of doing something very similar to dopey. Uh-huh. Um, but then incorporating elements of love and radio, specifically elements being, um, integration of music throughout the episode just to help with story and everything. Although I didn't really know what story was at the time, like how to actually cre- create or form a story. So I, I took these elements and I just kind of, I threw another ad on Craigslist and luckily the person that I got, uh, is actually episode one, uh, just turned out to be the best possible person I could have hoped for because she was, very comfortable with speaking. She didn't feel awkward. She was more than happy to tell an honest, uh, a personal story. And it just, it, that worked out, you know? Um, and so it just, it just kind of went, it just went from there. And slowly I, I feel like I've gotten better with the incorporation of music. There's, I still have a really long way to go. I always compare myself to love and radio because they, they are masters at it. They are so good. When you um, talk about love and radio, are you talking about um, 
taking on like the similar format in how they flow their narration and their interviews or yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, um, yeah, I, I always appreciate appreciated when I'd listen to your podcast, how you, how would you go about, you know, navigating and, and, um, keeping the crowd or listeners intrigued that way. Um, but I, I've also seen a lot of other podcasts kind of take that kind of that direction. Um, and I kind of envy them for it because it seems like a lot of work to, to go about, um, directing a podcast in that, in that manner. But, uh, you know, um, you're, uh, the episodes I have listened to, to psychotropic are, are very intriguing and fascinating. And I, I think I had first discovered your podcast when you had Dave on himself. Um, and, uh, the the people you have on are very very interesting you know sometimes i feel like some you know i wouldn't say like industry like players but like just regular people can have just as much if not more interesting stories as you know um famous people or 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 people who are in you know in uh in the public eye so to speak would you would you say the, the same thing about that or dude I, yeah absolutely um I, I have it, I had it and I still kind of have it in my mind to once in a while, try to get somebody who is in some sort of industry, right. Which I've, I've done before in the past. And while, while they have interesting things to say, I think that I personally am more interested in just the, the story of an average individual, because I think that it, it just, it just connects you. You know, it allows you to see like, oh, we have very similar experiences like you and I, we have similar experiences as far as the first time we got drunk, the, you know, when we got high, um, all of this stuff and it allows a connection to be formed. I think that the, and the thing is, is the episodes that I have released, I'm not really cherry picking interviews, you know, I'm literally almost everybody who I have interviewed I have generated an episode around, uh-huh. you know, it basically comes down to, you know, do I have the ability to listen to what they're saying and respond, I, I recognize when they're, when there's things that could be elaborated on, you know, mm-hmm. what's interesting to me, what's kind of like the catch 22 with psychotropic is I try to remove myself from it. Uh, I guess as much as possible once in a while I'll insert myself in, but that's largely because I get feedback from people asking me to insert myself more into it. But that wasn't the initial idea. Like I wanted to take myself out as much as possible so that it was just this person, you know, telling their story or telling some story. Uh But so once in a while I'll insert myself into that to kind of further a conversation or if there needs to be context for something that somebody, one of these uh, people are saying, but in the end, like everybody has a fascinating story somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and oftentimes it's not just the content of the story, but it's the actual storyteller. And like, say you have an insecure person and they are met with some, um, some task that they have to perform that exposes their insecurities. Like to me, that's interesting, you know, and really all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, uh, incorporate drug use into that. Basically, I'm just trying to almost say, show that drug use entails the same issues as non-drug use, Mm -hmm. 
you know, whether it be like somebody could be suffering from massive addiction uh, for a substance. Well, I think that, and their life could start to fall apart. I think that another person could be equally addicted to working out, you know, and their life could tank, but socially we don't perceive it that way. We just perceive them as a free spirit or like this gnarly dude that just is kind of a lone wolf, Mm -hmm. you know, when in reality, fucking, you know, mountain biking or whatever the hell they're doing constantly has torn relationships away from them, uh, has, you know, put their body into disrepair or something. And in the end, they're both similar stories. They're both like an addiction unto them, like in, in their own respective ways. And that's, what's really interesting to me is basically just showing that this drug use entails the same issues as pretty much everybody else. And I just kind of, I like the idea of people being able to relate to that. And I think sometimes I succeed at that. And a lot of times I don't succeed. <laughs> uh, well, no, I, I couldn't agree more with, um, with what you said about, you know, um, drug use being, or any other kind of socially acceptable activity being just as susceptible for abuse as drugs. And it's, it, and it has always fascinated me that, you know, we, we hold, you know, uh, the use of drugs and the culture around drugs at such a different regard than other things like people abusing fast food or like you said, uh, going to the gym too much or, or having some kind of, uh, physical activity that, that can cause such, um, injuries and stuff. And, and video game addiction, porn addiction. Exactly. Exactly. It's, um, and you know, I, it, it's like a part of me can understand why, um, society as a whole would, would look down on certain aspects of certain drugs, you know, you know, um, certain addictions are like force people into criminal elements. And, um, and I'm still kind of trying to find a balance between, well, you know, these are people and they need to be treated in, in a humane way, but we also need to, um, look at the situation for what it is. You know, I think that the, the drug war in itself has, has had uh, adverse reactions than what they were intended to, to do. And, um, I'm not sure what the solution is. Um, but I, I see the direction we are going in with, with drugs becoming more potent and, you know, uh, what's going on in Mexico with cartels. Um, and it, and it's, Part of it's a, a, a little bit um, terrifying, and a part of it I am completely fascinated around um, because I think that at some point there's going to have to be a breaking point where we're going to need to have, you know, as a country, just sit down and, and uh, develop new policies around um, some kind of reform. You know, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to try and go on the polar opposite and be like, you know, drugs. I mean, I, I believe personally drugs should be regulated and legalized because people are going to do them regardless, but I'm not going to go as far as say, oh, everyone should do drugs, you know. I um, I just think that, you know, around drugs and, and the use of drugs themselves, people are, are doing them whether or not there's a law threatening um, a jail conviction because of it. And I think uh, a lot of uh, criminal convictions are really only hurting the economy and um, and and the ability to provide opportunities for people to build careers. So I don't know what the healthy balance is in all that, but um, it's great that 
you know, there's people like Dave from Dopey and, and you with what you're doing with Psychotropic and, and all these different um, podcasts that are starting to come out of the dark and people are feeling a less shame base around, you know, their drug use or their past drug use. Um, and we can kind of come out in the open and, and to have these kinds of discussions so that people from like, you know, I guess the normies, quote unquote, can get, you know, have a better perspective of, of what that lifestyle or that culture is like as a whole, you know, if that makes any sense. Um, I know we were at an hour and a half, so I, and I know you got to get going. So, uh, I wanted to wrap this up, but, um, do you want anything, you have anything you want to plug before, before we end this? Dude, honestly, um, no, not really. I mean, uh, if anybody is listening and they're interested in checking out my podcast, it's psychotropic, uh, where drugs and life intersect. Uh, you can find it anywhere on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. So, uh, I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, if you have anything you want to write in or say, or if you're interested in being in a future episode, definitely get a hold of me and, uh, we can make it happen. Nice. Yes. And I'll, um, I'll include your, um, pod bean link in the description. That's, that's your, your pod host. I uh, yes. Yeah. You can. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to thank you again, um, Phil for, um, for taking and dedicating time to come on your, um, it was incredibly, uh, interesting and fascinating, uh, conversation and you're incredibly articulate and, um, and just, uh, I, I would love to have you back on and, um, and I can't wait to have another discussion with you. Dude, for sure. Anytime, man. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too, man. Bye. If you awaken from this illusion and you understand that black implies white, self implies other, life implies death, you can feel yourself not as a stranger in the world, not as something here on probation, not as something that has arrived here by fluke, but you can begin to feel your own existence as absolutely fundamental. What you are basically, deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence